Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pour out speech, and night to night reveal knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. In them, he set them as a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the earth and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from his heat. Lord is uh, such a blessing. You know, it's like I love springtime, being able to walk outside and see the new creation and see uh, God's handiwork. Just here, I was out for a walk this morning, hearing the birds chirp and the trees bud, and just be able to see what God's handiwork is. So he, he reveals himself in creation. He reveals himself in his word as well, which we will sing this morning, which we will hear preached this morning. And he reveals himself in Christ, and we will remind ourselves of what he has done for us. So uh, we are here to worship him today, worship him well. Just a couple of quick announcements uh, before we go here. Let's see if I can get my thing to open up. I cannot. There we go. Um, the VBS dates, I don't have those. Oh, I did not have those. We keep in mind that VBS is coming up this summer. The end of June, thank you so much. Uh, so the VBS is gonna be the end of June. We're gonna start hearing announcements in um earnest next week. Uh, so if you are interested in serving in VBS, uh, you'll be able to connect with Sherry Miller. She's not here today, but uh, you'll be able to connect with her moving forward. Uh, there is a ladies retreat meeting. Uh, Michelle Adams will have a meeting right after service. For anybody that is interested in serving and helping out with the ladies retreat, it is a really important time for the ladies of our congregation. So we would encourage you to do that. I think that's all I have. Let me uh, open us in a time of prayer. Father, the uh, passage here, we were talking about uh, the beauty of your creation, but it also talks about the beauty of your word, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they than gold, than even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. At the end of that psalm, it says, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you are the great rock. And I thank you, Lord Jesus. We just celebrated your, your precious life and your substitutionary death and your victorious resurrection and your amazing ascension and the fact that you're interceding for us right now. We just did that last week. I pray that that wouldn't just be a once a year thing, but that would be a daily thing that we'd be honoring you as our great rock, this foundation, and our great redeemer. So today, Father, as we sing, help us to sing well of your son by the power of your spirit. 
as we hear your word preached today. Help us have ears to hear. Pray for my brother Tim as he brings your word this morning. I pray that we hear ears to hear and hearts that are open. As we come to the uh, communion table this morning, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the great sacrifice your son made for us and help us to praise him. Praise him, praise him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, my 
gratitude for what he's done for you when you're singing.
Canada privilege to come into your presence this morning. We thank you for the great name of your son Jesus Christ that accomplishes great things in our lives. Lord Jesus, we want to glorify you and thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary's cross by which we can be forgiven and set free and find our lives changed. Lord, thank you that you not only aim to deliver us from the cost of our sin and its penalty, but you aim to change our lives. And so Lord, every Sunday morning we gather to listen uh, to your word uh, spoken, to sing your praises together, to exalt you and to acknowledge your great name above all. Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, you will give us hearts that are responsive uh, to your truth, because that is one of the very powerful evidences of the work of your spirit in our lives. So we trust, Holy Spirit, that you will open our eyes to receive your truth this morning, and that it would be for us not simply hearing, not knowledge, but life-changing for the glory of Jesus Christ, our ultimate King our ultimate Savior and Lord. And it is in that beautiful name that all God's people this morning pray and we say together, amen, amen. You can be seated. And as you do that, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verse 13 and following. So we're going to cover down through verse... 17. So essentially we're looking at one uh, paragraph primarily this morning. I uh, want to give you a reminder that next Sunday morning we will be sharing in a baptism service together. So we trust that you are able to come. Uh, baptisms are a very 
kind of wonderful part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to have the opportunity to proclaim our faith in Christ in the waters of baptism is one of the most beautiful things that we get to do. And uh, due to the number of folks that are getting baptized, we're going to have one baptism service in the month of April, and then our second one will be in the month of May. So if you have not been immersed following faith in Christ, uh, baptized in a biblical fashion, we want to encourage you uh, to consider that, to pray about that, and to ask God to give you courage to walk in obedience to the clear directive of his word in the waters of baptism. So if that's on your heart, please see one of the pastoral team members and let us know of that desire. So there are two things that uh, I think we typically say we're not to talk about, right? One is religion and one is politics. So we're not gonna talk about religion today. (laughs) And we're not gonna talk about politics because I would agree. But we are gonna talk about government, okay? Uh, Because the text that we come into today uh, certainly addresses the topic of our relationship to human government. We all uh, hopefully know that we live under human authority uh, in the country that we live in. Truth is, in almost every country in the world, unless there's total anarchy, there is an established government that we are to have a very specifically defined relationship with. So our discussion today is going to be somewhat practical. Uh, We're going to unpack what the idea of submission is, uh, the God-ordained place of government and its purpose, uh, how we best demonstrate our faith in Christ in the context of our culture and how we remember that God is our ultimate authority. So we're gonna work through this text. I wanna read it with you first. So let's uh, begin in verse 13. The text says this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Okay, so you get this very broad statement at the beginning that there are authorities or structures that God has established in culture. And we could identify a lot of them. We could talk about the home. We could talk about the context of marriage. We could talk about the context of church life, okay? There are many areas in which there is this idea of structure and stratification or submission to honoring of authority. It comes up in a lot of places, all right? So this text tells us to submit ourselves, this is for all of us, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted amongst men, whether to a king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Notice what verse 16 says, for it is God's will that by doing good, and one of those good things is being properly related to human government, okay? It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. So proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the king. So this text deals with how we relate to our community and authority in particular. As we work through the remainder of the chapter, you're going to see that the text is going to talk about our relationship to employers. It's going to talk about our relationships in the context of marriage. So there'll be the area of government, 
the area of work, and the area of marriage. Those will be three categories of authority that Peter is going to touch base on. Today we're going to spend our time focused on this topic of our relationship to human government. So the early church, as we have talked about in this text, as we talked about in the book of Revelation, faced a growing cultural hostility. Uh, There was a lot of government persecution of the church in the early centuries, and that persecution was often brutal and at times lethal. Okay, if you study through the history of the early church, you will realize that it was not an easy time for people to be followers of Jesus Christ. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of opposition to biblical norms. And I hope to you, you realize that that is familiar territory for us today. Because much of what is held dear in terms of biblical truth and biblical morality has in many ways come under a lot of attack. And ultimately, those that hold to those truths will find themselves facing increasing pressure for the convictions that they hold dear. So the question I want to ask is, how do we relate properly to our community and then to governmental authority in particular? And the first truth that comes out is in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted amongst men. I want to deal with this word submission. Okay, how many of you love that word? No takers on that, okay? Submission is a very interesting word. It is a word that's used regularly in scripture, and it is a word that you practice on a regular basis but you often don't realize that you're submitting, okay? Um, so so it, it tends to be a concept that we resist, right? If, you, if we're having a discussion about it, we're like, well, I don't like that concept, I don't like that word. It's a word that's biblical, okay? So we, we resist the, the concept, but we're grateful that it's present. Let me illustrate for you. All right, when you were driving here today, if you passed through a stop sign or a traffic light, or you were cruising down Route 57 and and you saw someone stopped at a stop sign, what were they doing? They were submitting to the authority and purpose of that sign. If you came to a traffic light and it was green and you went flying through because you were late to church for the first time ever, okay? And you saw people stopped at a red light. What were they doing? They were submitting to the authority that was represented by that light. And that reduces chaos on the road and promotes safety of those that use the roads. Uh, When I was coming this way on Route 57, I had a couple cars flash their headlights at me. And I assumed they're just saying, hi. Until I got to the Votech school. And I saw a state trooper sitting there, right, facing in the appropriate direction to capture the speed of people. And what were people doing? They were submitting. I didn't see anybody react in anger and say, what a horrible thing for him to sit there in a car marked with his authority and then submit to it out of anger. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that happen. Okay, we naturally understand that for human beings, who are sinful in their nature to get along and to survive without chaos, there has to be some understanding of authority and an appropriate relationship alignment under, we call that submission. 
okay? In our house, we like to play games occasionally, okay, when all the kids are home, okay? And when there's a dispute about the, the rules, okay, you get out the authority, you get out the directions to the, to the game, and you get out the rule book, and if everybody doesn't submit to the rule book, what happens to the game? It gets horrible, and Tim Hoff doesn't want to play. Now, a lot of my family members accuse me of cheating perpetually. Okay. I kid you not, I'm like, I just don't think they like losing, okay? So whenever I win, they're like, Dad, you cheated. You didn't shuffle the cards. You... If you've been in the military, you understand what I'm talking about, right? You, 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 you just understand that there is this idea of rank, and that rank does not determine the value of the individuals. It defines responsibilities and obligations, okay? When our children from our church go to school, hopefully they realize that the teachers, many of them that go to our church, have a position of authority and that as students you should come under their authority when they ask you to do something there's an expectation that you're going to do it we every parent doesn't say oh I just think it's so horrible that my kids have to go into that school building and submit themselves to those teachers you're glad they do right and the teachers are glad they do and if there were was no form of structure or authority it would be chaos and it would be unsafe for your kids to go into that environment you're thankful for the rules i'm thankful for the stop sign i'm thankful for the red light went through a couple yesterday that were not working because of the storm and it, what is it, that lack of authority present in that context where there could be a chaos creates a little bit of dissonance. It makes you slightly uncomfortable. You slow down, whereas if it was green, you would go right through, or if it was red, you would know to stop. That absence of authority due to a power failure creates a little bit of a discomfort. So authority is a gift that God gives us. It, it, it reduces and in some level is meant to constrain human sinfulness. I think it's important when we address this topic that we realize that we, we hold in, in the context of our relationships and workplaces and church life and family life, we have different roles that we fulfill, but those roles are never intended to determine value. Okay, and that's the problem I think that often takes place in people's minds as they think through the idea of submission. We tend to equate position with value. And that is such a flawed perspective of life. Jesus Christ came and said, the one who is greatest is among you is one who serves. Okay, so out of his, out of his great glory, he humbled himself and met our needs. The focus of this text in verse 13 is that we're to submit for the Lord's sake to every human authority instituted amongst men. And the, 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 the understanding there is it is instituted by God, if you go read Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13 one says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So as you read through scripture, you find that God established human government because of human sinfulness, okay? The reason, if you, if you go up to uh, the tractor supply, I was shocked by this a few years back. In fact, I should have I put this picture up because I took a picture. 
they have those rubber mats that go in horse stalls so that the horses can stand on them and they don't damage their feet or their legs, presumably, okay? And I noticed that they had these half-inch thick chains wrapped around those rubber mats with a lock on it because people are trustworthy and good. <laughs> right? No. If you locked your car when you came in here today, you understand that there is something called human sinfulness that needs to be restrained by human governments. Okay? And you, if, if, if you look at things clearly and, and, and objectively, you will become grateful for the institution of human government. And when you're grateful for it as a gift from God, you will align yourself under it with a proper attitude. Does that make sense? The powers that be are ordained by God. And one of the ways that we live rightly in culture is by submitting to the leadership of government. <clears throat> Verse 13 tells us that we do it for the Lord's sake. We do it to honor the one who put that institution in place. Even though we may disagree with the person who holds the position, the institution is ordained by God. And I am grateful for the government I live under, even though I believe that it is in many ways flawed because it is run by sinful people like me. Okay, and so we, 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 we kind of understand that we, we honor it because it is God's institution, it is God's means to protect our flourishing and to protect our lives. In the context, the government leader is the emperor, he is a dictator, and then those that are sent by him are local governors who have the responsibility of ruling over local areas. Okay, we have the same thing in our culture. We have a president and we have governors and we have state police and we have local police and there's all of these structures and layers that are meant for our protection and for our flourishing. We submit to it for the Lord's sake. And it's, it's interesting, I was talking to a friend last night and he brought up the story of David and Saul. Do you remember how King Saul, the first king of Israel in the Old Testament, was pursuing David with the intent of ending his life, okay? He was the God-appointed king who had drifted way off base and was acting in a sinful way. And at some point along the way in the story of King David and Saul, Saul, David is in a cave. Saul comes into that cave for a specific purpose. David has an opportunity to take Saul's life in protection of his own and does not do it. What was his rationale? His rationale was, as his, as his mighty men whispered in his ear, this is the divine appointment God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Go and do what's right. What does David say is right? I will not touch God's anointed. Fascinating. I will not take the life. Despite a great opportunity and despite good rationale, I will not subvert the purpose of God through Saul as king. That is powerful. I will not defend my own life by taking out the person that God has put in that position. Now, folks, let me, let me just say this, okay, for clarification. What David is saying is I honor the fact that God put this man in that position for such a time as this, and I will not subvert the purpose of God for my own benefit, okay? 
Because some of you start, just, your, your minds start running on me here, okay? Because some of you are saying, okay, 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 that, I get that. But what about, what about Nazi Germany? Okay, what about that? What about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Who is Christians, a man who was himself a pacifist. Finally, you know, a pacifist, right? This won't take someone's life, okay? Under any circumstance finally came to the conclusion that it was moral and right to oppose the government of Hitler because of the heinous crimes that were being committed. And they were part of this group called the resistance who decided that Hitler had crossed a line that put the whole country at risk and much of the world at risk. And so they stood up, all of them ultimately, at the cost of their personal lives, right? So I, I understand there are times when, okay, and I'd have to go into a whole broad discussion, which I didn't, didn't and don't want to go into this morning. Okay, but I want you to understand. I understand that there are those broader circumstances where for the good and benefit of others, there were people on the inside that sacrificed their lives to see change come. They didn't seek to improve their own lives. They were seeking to protect the lives of others. And that is a substantial difference between the story that I shared with you about David. So what the first way that we honor the institution of government, we, we, we get the concept of submission, that there is structure and there is different levels of responsibility while being equal in value. And we are to come under that authority, whether it is good or evil. We have an obligation before God to honor that. This text doesn't give you ways to slip out of that. Okay? So the text does not push a particular form of government, but it does call us to submit to the form of government that God has caused us to live under. We submit because it is right and because it honors God not to avoid negative consequences, not self-serving, but to honor and glorify God. And so Jesus said to his disciples, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. So I live under the governmental authority that I'm under, but I realize that I have a, ultimately I have a higher authority to which I am obligated. Okay, does that make sense? So we first, first hit, hit that. We, we live well in society by submitting to God-ordained leadership. Okay, and we submit because it is right before God for the sake of the Lord. Secondly, we live well in society in our culture by understanding the God-ordained purpose and value of government, all right? So look at verse 14. Uh, so, so verse one says, the king sends governors, verse 14, who are sent by him, the emperor, in this case, by the Caesar, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do what is right. Okay, that tells me the two purposes of human government. This is what we should implore from and expect of the human government that is over us. If God has put you in a position of leadership, this is the purpose for that position. Notice what he says. He says, they are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do what is right. What's the purpose of the punishment of evil? I want you to think about that for a second. Why would God give human government the task of punishing those who do evil? Okay? 
And I think that the, the very clear implication is that it's the purpose of that punishment is to deter and to restrain human sinfulness. Not just in those around you, but in you as well. Okay, the reason there are consequences, according to God's word, for violating the law of the state is that it is a means of restraint. It is aimed at maintaining order. So Romans 13 says, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted for rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those who do what is wrong. Okay, so human government has a responsibility to restrain the natural tendencies that are present in all of our lives. My natural tendency is, want what, is to want what I want at the expense of whoever else. That's our natural tendency. If you've been around toddlers lately, okay, you know that that starts really early, okay? They know how to demand. And, and so the, the, the government is given this purpose of punishing evil. So what does that fight against? It fights, fights against the idea of vigilantism, of being self-governing. God has given government to protect us from the brokenness of a system where everybody does what is right in their own eyes, where everybody has their own standard of justice and seeks to establish it in their own power. If government is to punish evil, it assumes that there is a need for such punishment and that the worst thing a government can do is to ignore evil when it is running rampant. I don't know if you remember a few years ago when some of the riots were taking place that got so, I mean, if people want to protest the march, that's one thing, but when people start rioting and breaking and harming and the government stands back, you, you, you had to feel Despite, despite your view on the cause, you had to feel a sense of being unnerved, of being vulnerable, of being exposed, because the government was failing to do its God-given task, which is to bring justice, which is to protect the citizenry. And when it is doing that, we have a God-given obligation to come under that authority, to yield to that authority, to do what we're being told. That's the clear Abundantly clear implication of this text. And then the government is to promote or to applaud or to encourage moral behavior. Government exists ultimately for the protection and the prospering of people. And that order that God has established requires of each one of us that we yield to that authority, that we come under that authority, not resisting not rebelling, but we come under it gladly because it has been ordained by God, okay? So we live well in society by submitting to God-given leadership, by understanding the God-ordained purpose of that, and then verse 15 is an interesting shift, okay? Look at what verse 15 says. It says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Interesting statement, isn't it? How does a Christian fend off unfair criticism? Or lies? How do, how do, you, how do you respond to that? What is the strategy that God gives to the church 
to live in a world that is often hostile to its convictions, beliefs, and practices, and yet we are called by God to do that, how do we best represent the cause of Christ in the world that we live in? Verse 15 says that it is God's will that by doing good, it is God's will that by doing good, we, we live in a hostile setting by practicing, well, I'm just gonna call it this, active benevolence. Doing good is how we submit. Doing good is how we serve. Doing good is how we impact the culture that we live in. By observing the laws that are over us, as long as those laws don't call us to disobey our ultimate authority. A long reputation of doing good is what Peter encourages, and he, he gives to us a, a, a general promise. He says, by doing good, you silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Ignorant means I don't know, but I'm saying something negative about you. Often in the ancient world, it was created. Okay, that there were false accusations would be leveled against the church because you couldn't find a true accusation against them. I'm not saying that that's often true for us today but that was the nature of the situation. The question was, Peter, how do we respond? We're doing what's right. How do we continue to live in a culture that's hostile to us or opposed to us? And Peter's argument is that you get involved in a long reputation of doing good, and here's his general promise. Doing good extinguishes, muzzles, or gags, or invalidates the accusations that come against you. I want you to think this through. If someone comes to you, just think of the person that you have a high degree of respect for. You, you, you know that person, they're a person of, of, of high integrity, they live consistently a good life. Think of that individual, okay? And now somebody comes to you and levels a charge against them, okay? What happens in your mind? You, you, you audibly capture the charge. You, you hear the accusation is being made against them, against that individual, and then you weigh that charge against the life of the person you know. You follow me? So somebody says to me, all right, I'll, I'll use my wife because she's my safe example. Your wife is gossiping all the time. Okay? She's, all, she's angry and gossiping. Yeah, some of you are laughing. <laughs> and that's the point. That's the point. Justin, I don't know you very well, but I say, somebody says Justin did X, Y, or Z, and I say, I know Justin. I, I, I find that hard to believe. It's laughable. Because the reputation of that person is so firm and established in doing good that it defeats the criticism in and of itself. Do you, do you understand what would happen if the church of Christ got serious about its morality? If the church of Christ got serious about its benevolence towards people in need? If we were strategic and thoughtful about doing good, that ultimately we had a reputation of doing good. When people throw charges against us, people will literally, they'll just say, just, that does not measure up to the person I know. They're not like that. And it muzzles, it gags, it diffuses, it makes 
difficult to believe. Folks, isn't that beautiful? That's what God wants us to be. So committed to what is right that when charges of immorality or dishonesty come against us, the world around us looks and says, I know some of those people. And what you're saying doesn't line up with the reputation of the person that I know. Therefore, I believe it is invalid. Okay? So, 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 so what do we put our focus on? Do we put our focus on protesting, on complaining, on being loud, on being obnoxious? Putting up billboards, holding placards, putting stickers on our car, no offense if you have one, okay? But is that the best way to make a difference? Okay, I, I, I live locally here, so I've gone through the intersection of Route 31 and 57. And uh, for quite a time period, there were people who were out there with signs and I'm not weighing in on what I thought of what they're saying. I'm talking about the strategy. Go out there and get in people's faces. Let them know that you love them. No, let them know they're wrong. Let them know that you disapprove of something. First, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to say that doing that is wrong. But I do question the wisdom of that approach. Okay? Because I think what happens when we go out and act in that fashion, we are fanning the flames of hostility and we are not following the directive of God for how we should live in the culture that he's called us to live in. Because his directive is long benevolence. Durable care. A fascinating level of affection and love for people while holding firmly to our convictions. That is without compromising biblical truth, we do what is best for others. That's the idea of good. It's beneficial. It enhances the life of someone else. Romans 12 says this, it says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. God says this, he says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Long benevolence is the means by which we respond to the brokenness of living in a sinful world. May God help us to get a passion for what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let it claim control over you because you're so aggravated and irritated and angry. If it's just, I get it, but it can't be my mode of operation in the world around me. Don't be overcome by evil. Let it, don't let it control you, but overcome evil with good. Practice long benevolence, durable love and affection. And if that doesn't change someone's heart, Yelling at them won't. Okay, please understand that. I am in no way arguing for compromise. I am in no way trying to weaken biblical convictions. Please understand. I'm talking about the way that we approach and live in the world that God has called us to live in. And then... We live in our world well by remembering that God is our ultimate authority. Look at verse 16. Paul says this. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm not fully prepared to unpack this verse. Okay, it's a complex verse. Live as free men, 
but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as servants of God. Live as free men, but do not use freedom as a cover for evil. Here's the, probably, I should have called Doug and asked him about this, okay? Ahead of time, but I didn't. Because I know better. No. <laughs> Not true. I really don't. The one idea that comes from this is that it, it would be possible if you were Jewish, living in a province of Rome, you're Jewish, the Romans, see, and, and, and the mindset of a Jew was no matter where I live, I'm still a Jew. <laughs> okay, does that make sense? I, no matter where I am, I'm a citizen of God's. Therefore, I don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. I'm using my freedom as a Jew, not as a Christian, but as a Jew, to pay less taxes. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm free, I'm Jewish. I know I live in Rome, but I'm really a citizen of heaven. Therefore, I don't have to pay. So I'm using my freedom as a Jew, as one of God's people nationally, as a reason for not obeying the government that I live under. So my freedom as a Jew becomes a pretext, a reason for not paying my taxes when Paul in Romans 13 and in numerous places, very clear, Jesus said when, when the disciples pulled the coin out of the mouth of the fish, Jesus says, whose insignia is on it? He's talking to Jewish people. And their question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? We're free men. And Jesus pulls that coin out of the fish's mouth and what does he say? Whose insignia? They say Caesar's. Here's all he says. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. Caesar is a properly established authority, though brutal and at times lethal, but the ordained power of God. Give him what he deserves. And don't use your status nationally as a pretext or as justification for disobedience. That's the point. How does this work out in our lives? And I, 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 remember that God is my ultimate authority. The end of the verse says this, as servants of God. Some of your translations say, as slaves of God. The idea there is that God is your ultimate authority and guide in your life. He's the one that I owe honor to. He's the one who laws, whose laws I must obey. So let me just make this statement for you. Just because something is legal does not mean that it is moral. You understand what I'm saying? Just because something is legal does not mean that it is moral. Why? Because my ultimate authority is not the government who determines what is legal. It is the creator God who determines what is right. Okay, so let me just tick off a couple things. Drunkenness is not illegal, but it is immoral by God's word. And it is foolish by God's word. Pornography is legal in the country I live in, but it is decidedly immoral. You tracking with me? Okay. Christians 
need to realize that their ultimate authority is not their preferences. It is God himself. And the way for me to be the best citizen of the country that God has called me to live in as a follower of Christ is to know that my ultimate authority as I consider the directive of the king, in this case, the president, okay? Or everybody under him, local authorities and national authorities. As I think about that, I realize that no matter what they ask, I must check it with God first in order to be a citizen of heaven and to have him as my king. Okay, what that will do for you, it will eliminate a lot of the confusion that we tend to live with. Because the first thing we wanna know is, what does God say about this? The first question every Christian needs to ask is, what do I need to do in this circumstance to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the question we need to ask. How do I honor Christ as Lord? Now, I want, to, I want to address an issue, because how many of you have heard the term civil disobedience? Raise your hand real quick if you know what I mean when I say civil disobedience. Okay, civil disobedience is to reject the rightful rule. Please understand that. To reject the rightful rule of government in, effort, in an effort to maintain my moral integrity. Okay, that would be from a Christian perspective. For some people, civil disobedience is just, I don't like what the government said, so I'm gonna do what I wanna do. That's the world we live in today. A very self-centered, self-loving culture that rejects government because it gets in the way of what they want to do. That is not the Christian perspective. The Christian perspective is, I can only disobey the government when the government asks me to do something that violates a clear directive from God himself. Okay, does that make sense? So civil disobedience does not get angry. It is humble and bold because it knows that I am representing the king of kings and there may be a consequence to rejecting an earthly king. But I will do it because it honors God. Okay? And you've got to get that distinction in your mind. The only justification for disobeying earthly government from a biblical perspective is when it tells me to violate a clear directive of the king of kings. Then it's game one. Then I need to be willing to stand, to proclaim truth, to live truth, and endure the consequences, not in anger, but as a representative of Jesus Christ. Okay, this has so much to do with attitude. Because I think biblical civil disobedience is a humble boldness, inflamed by a desire, filled by a desire to honor God above all things. And so here I must stand, despite the consequences. So the question becomes, when is it proper to obey God? And are there any biblical examples? I'm just gonna give you a couple real quick, okay? These are accounts that if you're biblically literate at some level, you're probably somewhat familiar with these, okay? Exodus 1, verse 17. Pharaoh sends out an edict for the Jewish midwives to kill every male child that is born into a Jewish family in the land of Egypt. Abort on birth. That was the directive 
of Pharaoh. Exodus 1.17 says this, in, in, in response to that directive, every male child dead on delivery, okay, in response to that, because the Jewish midwives feared God, okay, do you see? Because they reverenced God, they refused to obey the king's order to abort male children. Okay, why did they not do what the king wanted? Because the king had given a directive that was in clear violation of biblical truth. Does that make sense? Another one, Daniel chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, erects a gold statue 90 foot high, nine feet wide, plants it on the plain of Shinar, and tells everybody in his nation, you must come, you must bow, you must pay homage to the statue of me. You must acknowledge my deification. Irregardless of your religious background, you must set it aside and bow in homage to acknowledge that I am the ultimate authority in the world. And there were three men. Their Jewish names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And when everybody else fell down, including the Jews that came with them from the land of Palestine, there were three stark figures who stood and when Nebuchadnezzar heard that there were three Jews that were unwilling to bow down and acknowledge his ultimate authority because they had an ultimate authority already, he was enraged and he called them in and he threatened them to cast them into the furnace and he bargained with them. He says, I'll give you one more chance. And their very bold and humble response was, O king, we do not need to bargain. If we are thrown into the fiery furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, we want to make it clear to you that we will not bow down. Look, does that, look at the beginning of verse 16. It is for freedom. You know who's free in this story? Those three men. They don't need the applause or approval of a king because they have the approval of a king of kings. And he cast them into that fiery furnace in an effort to extinguish and destroy them. And an individual shows up in that furnace with them and he says, didn't I throw in three? And they said, yes. And he said, why do I see four? And God had come to protect by his angel, his people. And when they come out of the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar says this, praise be to God. He sent his angel to rescue, listen, his servants. End of verse 16, live as servants of God. Nebuchadnezzar could see in their civil disobedience that they honored God above him. And it changed his life. Because they, I remember one pastor saying they wouldn't bend, budge, or burn. Okay? Nothing would get them to change their thinking, to change their conviction, to change their understanding of the ultimate authority of God himself. And I would argue that the person in bondage that day was Nebuchadnezzar. Because he had to follow through on his edict. But these men were free. You know, in the workplace today, you may face similar circumstances. 
in the corporate world, perhaps in the realm that you have worked in historically, perhaps you're retired, perhaps you're still in a workplace. This text means that if you were asked to do something dishonest, if you were asked to lie or misrepresent, you need to say to your boss, I will not lie for you, and I will not lie to you. Here I stand. You need to have that humble boldness. You don't go in there, how dare you ask me to, no, no, no. You just say, sir, I'm sorry. Ma'am, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I'm a Christian. And God tells me I can't lie. I have a dear friend 25 years ago who lost a multiple six-figure job because he wouldn't lie to get the next promotion. He was a vested employee with seven figures at stake. He said, Tim, I just, I couldn't lie. Not on something that clear through which I would personally benefit. He said, I would have to live with that benefit wrongly gotten the rest of my life. So, thank you. Perhaps you're here today and you're a teacher. You're an educator. And you're asked to teach a curriculum or share material that promotes a morality that is clearly contrary to biblical truth. And I believe those days are coming. What will you do? Will you keep your paycheck? Or will you honor God? On January 8th in Canada, 2022, a new law was passed that is so broad, related to pastors and churches, that it bans any practice, treatment, or service aimed at helping a person to accept their biological sex or to embrace biblical sexuality between a man and a woman as right and normal. Such counseling <clears throat> would lead to criminal penalties and charges. Folks, I hope you're listening to the world you live in. I hope you are very cognizant of the challenges, formidable, strong. You need to be free and clear in your mind about what's right and what's wrong, about what Where's your line? At what point will you say, I cannot support this? And as a follower of Christ, based on my religious conviction, I have to go to the leader of my school and say, I can't. I can't. I can't do it. That's hard. Because that may put your paycheck at risk, your career at risk. Thank God for the biblical examples. Thank God for people like Peter and John who said we must obey God rather than man when they threatened them to stop speaking in his name or we will do something horrific to you. And they looked with a bold humility and said whether it's right for us to obey you or God, you decide. But here's our verdict. And here we stand. We must obey God rather than man.
So there is a context clearly in Scripture. You've got to take your stand. You've got to be the man or woman of God. You've got to be committed, devoted to biblical truth. You need to be aware of it so that you can live it and practice it. I also thought of the medical field. I thought of a doctor or a nurse who was asked to prescribe or directed to prescribe and give abortive medications. That's the world we live in. You're not given a choice. How do we respond when the temporary authority asks us to violate the ultimate authority? We must live as slaves of God, free. Because the only reason I cave is because I want the applause of people. I want the admiration of people. I can't live with being unappreciated. And it tears at my heart and I live in a place of bondage. May God help us to understand what it means to be humbly bold when we are confronted with circumstances that we cannot abide and must stand against. May God help us. So verse 17 ends our text. It says, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the king. And I think this is a beautiful summary, isn't it? So, okay, so that's it. So how should we live? What does God require of us? Here's what he requires. Have a proper respect for everybody. Treat people with decency and dignity, which is why I have a problem with protesting in certain fashions, okay? My fear is that people will cross the line in a group like that and taint the whole. We as the church of Christ has something precious to protect. That is the reputation of Christ and the reputation of his body in our community. I don't think it's wise to put that at risk in a context in which I can be severely misunderstood. We need to speak and practice in situations where it's clear. And to do that, we must treat people, even people that we disagree with, with decency and dignity. It's different than approving of them. It's different than approving of what they are promoting but it means that when we take a stand against it, we do it understanding that they are a person created in the image of God. And they should be treated with some level of dignity and decency, even when it is infuriating to do so. Okay, and I just want you to know, that's, I, that's, that's the real me, is the infuriated part, okay? The God part is if I treat them in the proper fashion with the right attitude, decently and with dignity. It's not a call to respect all lifestyles. It's not a call to confirm sin. It is a call to love your neighbor as yourself. And by that, we distinguish ourselves. Secondly, he says here, love the brotherhood. This is clearly a description of the body of Christ. It is a familial statement. And it, 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 in Galatians 6, it's kind of unpacked, right? Where we have this obligation, especially to the household of God, to do good. I have a higher obligation to do good to the church family than I do to the community in which I live. That does not mean they get a pass on the community I live in. I have an obligation to both. I, and hopefully all of us understand this. And I used to tell the kids at youth group, if my house goes on fire and there's 15 of you in my house, I'm grabbing my daughters first. <laughs> and all the kids said, we understand. 
They're first because they're family. But I also have an obligation to love and protect you. So one does not excuse the other, okay? They're bound together. I'm to love the brotherhood and I'm to love my neighbor. Both of those are directives from the highest king. And John 13 assumes that there is an audience watching that. And Jesus said to his disciples, by this love of one another in Christ, the world around you that's watching will know that you are my children, will know that you are my followers because you love one another. So folks, please understand, as we talk about how we stand against, it is under this larger umbrella of love for others that we stand boldly, wishing and desiring and praying for what is right and best for them. And then he says, fear God. That is simply to say, that is my ultimate loyalty. The book of Proverbs chapter 14, I believe it's verse one, says this. says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 29.5 says this. The fear of man brings a snare. What does that mean? It means the fear of man. If you are craving the approval of people, it will cause you to trip morally. It'll cause you to trip in relationship to your reputation and, and, and your testimony. If I please people, I always drift away from God. And when I please God first, I become the most helpful person to you that I could possibly be. That's true for every one of our lives. Compromise is never a way to help people. Approving things that God disapproves of is never a way to help people. And then lastly, he, he, I love the way he ends this. Honor the king. So I believe the, begin, the first command of, of, of verse 17, have proper respect for all, is worked out in the other three challenges. Okay, a high regard for God that changes how I live. A love for others that changes how I relate to people that I disagree with. And a love for the Lord is my king that changes how I respond to specific circumstances in my daily life. May God make us courageous. May God give us the ability to say, here I stand. You can threaten, you can do whatever you need to do. But my homage is to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. All right, so you may listen to that and say, wow, I got a lot of work to do. If you think that salvation, getting a right relationship with God is by moralism, meaning what I need to do is come on Sundays, hear things that God wants me to do and go do them, and if I do enough of those good things, I will move into a relationship with God. You're misunderstanding, okay? We don't live a moral life to gain God's approval. We live a moral life because we have God's love and affection through Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I hope you don't go away saying, okay, and I know the things, honey, I got a list. I know what I'm gonna do and when I'm doing that, then I'm a good Christian. No, you're not, you're a moralist. You're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in yourself. And you know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to shatter your moralism. He wants you to see that your moralism is insufficient, that it is a weak righteousness that can never make you right with God. And he wants you to know that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 24 of this chapter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. We are made right with God. We are forgiven. And this morning we're going to share in the Lord's table. 
as we prepare to go on our way today. And we're going to observe the Lord's table together as a means of proclaiming that our ultimate faith and hope is found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And in light of that love and affection that God has for us, we live as citizens of earth while at the same time being citizens of heaven. And in communion, what are we doing? We're simply partaking of two elements that proclaim the body of Christ broken, the bread, that proclaim the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of my sins so that I don't have to be moral to be a child of God. I become righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, and our prayer for you is simply this, that as you contemplate the shed blood of Christ, as you contemplate the broken body of Christ for you, that you might bow your head and say, God, if I partake of this as a means of having favor with you, it's just another moral thing. It's another thing on my list. And next Sunday, I come and watch a baptism service and say, ah, I got to do that too. And you become overwhelmed thinking that it's about performance. I want to shatter that for you. Your relationship with God is based wholly upon what Jesus Christ did for you. And communion is proclaiming what Jesus did for you. And if you can hold those elements in your hands this morning and say, Father, I believe that you, the body of your son was broken for my sin. I believe the shed of, that the blood of Christ was shed for the cleansing of Tim Hoff from his sin. Then Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 11 becomes clear. Examine yourself. See where you stand with God. Then in the imperative, eat that bread and drink that cup. And when you do it, you are saying, Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is the one who died to take away my sin. And all of my effort apart from him would be failing. But when it is energized by a work of the Spirit who brings new birth and change in my life, it glorifies God. It doesn't save me. It glorifies God in my life. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as we bow before you, we acknowledge this, uh, this is a topic that we may avoid for good reason, because it be, can be complicated and difficult. Oh, Lord, help us to be citizens of heaven who are really bold, humble citizens on earth who live not to honor themselves, not to get status for themselves, but who live to serve others for the glory of God as free men. So Father, as we come this morning and as we have this tray passed by us, I pray that we will, as your word says, examine our hearts, find the sin we need to confess and confess it, and then eat that bread and drink that cup, proclaiming my hope is in the shed blood and broken body of Christ alone. And Lord, if there's a friend here this morning who is wrestling with what it means to be a follower of Jesus, wrestling with what it is to trust in the, in the finished work of Christ on Calvary, then Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning to see the beauty of Jesus who humbled himself even to death on a cross for my forgiveness and for theirs. And may they, as this celebration takes place, may they trust in you. May they confess their sin and may they proclaim their hope is in Christ alone. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. I'm going to ask the men to come and to pass out the elements.
Apostle Paul said this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sorrows, 